Welcome to Michael Myers Minute, where we delve into the 1978 horror classic Halloween one minute at a time. I'm your host, Robert Black. Michael's head goes to the left and starts to go to the right again as Minute 67 begins. Bob Sims is pinned to the pantry door by an unusually long butcher knife. In second six, cut to interior Wallace bedroom. Linda lounges on the bed, filing her nails. The script has her smoking another cigarette when she hears Bob enter the room, but doesn't look up. But let's go to the novelization first. Linda dragged impatiently on her cigarette, then ground it out in the ashtray on the night table, just under the grimacing mouth of the jack-o'-lantern. Well, Jack, where is he? I set him down ten minutes ago for one lousy beer. Is he manufacturing it or what? If he were half the man he looks like, he'd have made the round trip in record time and would be back in bed by now. Isn't that right, Jack? The pumpkin's flame answered her with mute flickering. Linda tapped another cigarette out of the pack and hung it on her lower lip. Then she grinned with inspiration. Hey, baby, light my fire, she said to the jack-o'-lantern, thrusting the cigarette through the pumpkin's nose and lighting it on its candle. Thanks. You may look like a punk, but deep down inside you're a real gentleman. Not like some people. She heard the steps creaking and composed herself under the covers. The steps were heavy, like an old man or someone laboring under a big load. Thank God, Linda sighed. Where's my beer? Second eleven, the door creaks open. The shape stands in the doorway. He is covered with a sheet like a ghost. He wears Bob's glasses. This outfit choice was Deborah Hill's idea, and I'm surprised people haven't written more, more meaningfully about this moment. Two strands of discussion come to mind. First, why is this a costume? Why do we picture ghosts this way? Writing for the Daily Beast in 2015, Natalie Charest references, among others, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol, in which the ghost of Jacob Marley is specifically said to be wearing the clothes he wore during life, complete with a set of chains. And she wonders where the bedsheet ghost comes from. Charest suggests, quote, Representations of ghosts in street clothes, even those of centuries ago Scandinavia, presented a few logistical challenges for artists. Namely, how do you make sure audiences can tell the differences between living characters and dead ones, and how do you get the ghost's costume to stop all the noisy creaking? Thus, the image of the bedsheet ghost became more popular as a sort of expository workaround employed by directors and illustrators. Instead of the clothes that they died in, more and more ghosts began popping up in their burial shrouds, which look an awful lot like 21st century sheets. Throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the cloudy and billowing aesthetic we tend to associate with specters dominated popular ghost stories. End quote. She goes on to explain, perhaps drifting into the erroneous, so I take this with a grain of salt. Quote, Halloween as we know it today finds its roots in turn-of-the-century America, where folk traditions imported from multiple European countries began to intermingle within immigrant communities. Given the major influx of Irish arrivals in the wake of the mid-19th century potato famine, it is no surprise that Halloween borrows heavily from Celtic paganism including nods to spirits of ancestral dead, costumes, and a neighborly ritual that would eventually become trick-or-treating. Early Halloween costumes tended to be simple, spooky, and cheap, which naturally led to bedsheet ghosts, end quote. And here's just one way this description starts to feel problematic to me. She references Norman Rockwell, who has a knack for boiling supposed tradition into singular images that had lasting power. She continues, quote, Halloween's earliest years thus became the costume's heyday. The 1916 children's book Halloween at Maryville includes an illustration of several young spooks at a Halloween party. And Norman Rockwell drew a little girl on a bedsheet alongside her faux-frightened grandpa on a 1920 cover of Saturday Evening Post, end quote. 
She continues to write of supposed ghosts, impersonators, people who in the 18th and 19th century dressed in sheets to spook locals for kicks. Then she gets sidetracked into spiritualism because a sheet is an easy fake ghost to rig. But let us instead turn to Jonathan Zimmerman, whose piece from Christian Science Monitor in 2013 I cited back in Minute 17, about how Halloween from the turn of the century had become an occasion for young men of every ethnicity to flout the rules of polite society. He quotes a columnist of the time, quote, This is the only evening on which a boy can feel free to play pranks outdoors, and it is his delight to scare passing pedestrians, ring doorbells, and carry off the neighbor's gates, end quote. But over the next few decades, Halloween hijinks devolved into much more serious vandalism. In Minute 27, I referenced Samira Kawash writing for the American Journal of Play about how, from the 30s to the 60s, trick-or-treating emerged out of pranks, and the threat of a trick was often very real, well before anyone was prepared ahead for treats with cheap bags of candy at their door. I was going to insert the bit straight from Minute 27's recording, but I'm not sure it made it in in its entirety, because I had a guest. So here's the longer version, I'm pretty sure, of something that I think only came up in passing. Trick-or-treating as we know it today, or something resembling it, didn't really emerge in America until the 1930s. But even then, it was more common for children to dress up in costume for Thanksgiving than for Halloween. And going door-to-door was more mummery than souling. That is, more for making merry than for begging. And ringing doorbells one by one morphed from a doorbell ditch prank, and the waging of a sort of invisible war on the privacy and peace of the household, into something closer to what we know as trick-or-treating. The earliest description Kawash finds for trick-or-treating, quote, comes from Blackie, Alberta, Canada, 1927. Halloween provided an opportunity for real strenuous fun. No real damage was done, except to the temper of some who had to hunt for wagon wheels, gates, wagons, barrels, etc., much of which decorated the front street. The youthful tormentors were at back door and front demanding edible plunder by the word trick-or-treat to which the inmates gladly responded and sent the robbers away rejoicing, end quote. And Kawash argues, quote, trick-or-treating first appeared during the years of the Great Depression, a time when economic dislocation strained normal social relations. Contemporaries were unsure whether to view trick-or-treating as innocent fun, as begging, or as theft. Trick-or-treating was all of these, but not exactly. The innovation of trick-or-treating combined Halloween traditions with an inspiration from 1930s popular culture. Trick-or-treating transformed the Halloween prankster into the Great Depression-era anti-hero, the American gangster, end quote. And later, quote, trick-or-treating children upended the relationship between those who were powerful and those who were powerless. The exchange confused the positions of the haves and the have-nots, if only for one night. Begging rituals, like souling, called on charity and pity as the basis for donation. Trick-or-treating, with its invocation of the gangster, more closely resembled extortion, end quote. The story we used to tell about why kids trick-or-treat is bullshit, is the thing. Kids don't dress in costumes to frighten off spirits, but to frighten their neighbors. And costumes were originally more of a Thanksgiving thing than a Halloween thing. It is worth noting, of course, that I am trusting the Christian Science Monitor and the American Journal of Play over the Daily Beast. It's the intercollegiate debater in me. When sources are in dispute, you must take measure of their credibility. But there's certainly the possibility that Shure's research is sound. The second strand for discussion here is Michael stands in the doorway to the Wallace bedroom dressed in someone else's overalls, someone else's mask, wearing someone else's sheet to pretend to be Bob Sims for the moment. It comes down to something I've talked about before in this show, how putting on a costume and a mask allows us the anonymity to act out. Maybe Michael Myers didn't kill Danny all those years ago because his mask, his anonymous face, was waiting for him upstairs. Notably, in minute six, Michael retrieves his mask from the doorway to his own bedroom, somewhere he would never again sleep as Michael Myers. Murray Leader writes in Halloween Devil's Advocate series of a 1974 psychological experiment that 
showed that aggressive behavior increased substantially when Halloween costumes were worn. Scott Fraser, who ran the experiment, tells NPR in a 2012 interview that, quote, study challenged an idea that was universally believed at the time and is still widely held today. People who do bad things are bad people. Actions derived from character. Not so, Fraser says. Given the right circumstances, both children and adults can be induced to violate social norms. The context, not character, is king. Among the chief factors that can turn good kids into thieves? Anonymity. End quote. Michael's anonymity here is interesting because there are levels to it. I've pointed out more than once that in this movie, no one ever refers to him as Michael Myers. In the credits, he is the shape. In his white mask, he is no one in particular. In his bedsheet, what should be even more of an obscurer of identity, suddenly, Linda has reason to believe this is Bob Sims in the doorway. The extra layer of anonymity has offered up, at least temporarily, a level of specificity. The visual also harkens back within the film to Michael standing by the clothesline. There is no wind in this moment because Michael is indoors, but that just makes the flowing visual all the scarier. What should be moving hangs limp. Linda may think this is Bob, but we know otherwise. We know that Michael is toying with her. We know that sometime soon he is going to kill her. We can scream at the screen, but our cries will be impotent. Linda, well did you get my beer? Second 24, she finally looks up. She laughs. Linda, cute, Bob, real cute. Second 30, she stops filing. The ghost doesn't answer. Linda looks at the ghost. Second 36, she sits up and slides the sheets down from her body. Linda, see anything you like? PJ Souls was married to Dennis Quaid at the time of filming. He was supposed to play Bob, but his upcoming travel for his role in Breaking Away made that impossible. Allow a tangent. An outtake, I believe, from minutes one to two. BJ Souls told a funny story once. I don't remember what I saw it in. She saw it in a theater. She wanted to go and see what people thought of Halloween. And there was a guy who was, let's say, very appreciative of her fair breasts. When she says, see anything you like. Yeah. Yes, in the movie. Her nipples. Yeah, and she was. She just thought it was funny that, that this guy was... Well, and supposedly Dennis Quaid was with her at the time and asked if he should say something to the guy. And she's like, no. Yeah, so, you it's know. Because I think the guy who plays Bob looks like a young Dennis Quaid. And if Dennis Quaid well. was supposed to play him... He was. Yes. Then that's perfect. That dude kind of looks like a young... Dennis Quaid was supposed to play him, but he had to travel. But if you're talking about a scene from the movie that everybody remembers, mm-hmm. or even if you've never seen the movie, you've seen a the picture, kitchen? Mm-hmm. is the kitchen killing. You know, you see the image of him on the wall... But it's also where Michael would, you know, head his head. looking mm-hmm. at him. You know, a lot of people, even if you've never seen the movie, one, yeah. a lot of people remember that scene. Mm-hmm. So it would be, I don't know, the actors who plays Bob, but it would kind of be cool to be that guy. Well, supposedly when Nick Castle, who was also friends with John Carpenter, would ask mm-hmm. for direction as the shape, he would say, like, your motivation is to get from this side of the room to that side of the room. And he'd be like, tilt your head now, and wouldn't tell him why. He'd mm-hmm. just tell him to do random things. It's kind of like a dog, right? Yeah. Because you want well, yeah. to be less yeah, than human. Yeah, they tilt their heads just to kind of look at, just to look at you. Also, to look at something. Um, yeah. A lot of the guys who have played Michael said that one of the things that they tried to do was do Nick Castle's walk. It was always a very slow walk. It was very distinctive. And there have been a couple people that I've seen who played Michael who said that was one of the things that they looked at because they were trying to make it look like that because that was one of the things that you remember is just that slow walk. Supposedly, Nick Castle based it on Yul Brynner in Westworld. Ooh, that's good. That's interesting. But what about the shape, right? Is that a separate thing? 
the shape is how they credited it in the film, which is credited right. to Nick Castle. Right. Yeah. Michael, then that means, Michael 23 is credited to Tony Moran. Yes. He's actually right. only in the one scene. He's only in one scene where he takes, when he mask, takes off the mask. mask. But the shape makes it sound like more of the guy who's just kind of standing there and you see a shape like that tree in South Pass where <laughs> yeah. we just see this guy just standing there. Which to me is just as creepy. When according to Tony Moran, like six people played the shape over the 20 right. days the film took. Mostly Nick Castle, uh, was his name? Donald Woodbine, I think, which is the stuntman. Deborah Carpenter. Or Deborah Carpenter? Deborah Hill. <laughs> you just married John Carpenter. Deborah Hill. I did. <laughs> they should have gotten married instead of just being together yeah, they as were writers. They were better professionally dead. than personally. Rest in peace. Deborah but Hill Deborah Hill wonderful. in the scene when Tommy Lee looks out the window. And... Mm-hmm. I don't remember who the other one is supposed to be. I don't know, but I think in Halloween 2, Dick then Warlock, Dick Warlock was is only credited point. as the shape. The shape, of course, here under the sheet is even less distinct. The ghost doesn't answer. He continues to stare at Linda. Linda, what's the matter? Can I get your ghost, Bob? Linda laughs at her own joke, then stops when she sees the ghost is motionless. And the minute ends. That is all for Minute 67. Michael Myers Minute is a production of Lemming Drops Studio. You can find more content at lemmingdrops.com. Stalk me on Twitter and Facebook at Myers Minute or Instagram Michael Myers Minute. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a nice review if you like what you hear. Till next time. See you later.